Good evening, everyone. Can you hear me? The sound is good. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for coming out this evening uh, to attend the first of three lectures being given tonight by Professor Carlos Ayer of Yale University. My name is Fred Appel. I'm the senior editor for religion at Princeton University Press. And Princeton University Press is co-sponsor of these lectures with the Princeton University Public Lectures Committee. Um, the Public Lectures Committee has asked me to say just a few words about this particular set of endowed lectures being given by Professor Ayer. These are the Spencer Trask lectures, part of the Spencer Trask lectures series. It was founded, this lecture series, back in 1891 with a gift of $10,000 from Spencer Trask of the class of 1866. And um, supplemented by an additional $10,000 from his estate. Spencer Trask was a successful, or he became a successful financier and was one of Thomas Edison's original backers. Um, the lecture series was originally um, instituted for the purpose of securing the services of eminent men to deliver public lectures before the university on subjects of special interest. Some of the previous Spencer Trask lectures in past years have included Arnold Toynbee on Near Eastern Affairs, T.S. Eliot on the Bible and English Literature, Bertrand Russell on Mind and Matter, Margaret Mead on the Changing American Character. Not to put any pressure on you at all. <clears throat> all right. <laughs> so it's now my great pleasure uh, to introduce um, a faculty member who has uh, agreed to introduce Professor Ayer this evening, Anthony Grafton, Henry uh, Putnam University Professor of History. Good evening. It's a great, great pleasure to introduce Carlos Ayer. He is a spectacular historian. All historians would like to be thought of as iconoclasts, and his first book, The War Against the Idols, is one of the great studies of iconoclasm in history, iconoclasm in the Protestant Reformation. A really splendid piece of work and a genuinely iconoclastic one. When Carlos and I were young in the 1970s, it seems like a long time ago, we all knew, all good historians knew, that religion was never the, the final cause of anything in history. It was a mask for the hegemony of individuals or of classes. It was a delusion which the world had happily cast off in its progress towards secularism and modernity. Whatever it was, it didn't make people do important things. Carlos's book was one of a number, and one of the most important of them, that began to remove this ghost from the historian's machine and to show us how in early modern Europe, as in late antique and medieval Europe, and as we've now seen in more recent times, religion is as powerful a fact in our lives as anything else we could possibly imagine. I was brought up to treat the 
resistance treatises of the 1570s, these innovative political works written by Calvinists as being political arguments. Carlos taught me to see that they were religious arguments that had a political bearing. This was an extraordinarily important change in the way that we do the history of early modern Europe. Professor Eyre was trained at Yale and after a long career at Virginia, returned there. He's J. Loris and Riggs Professor of History and Religious Studies there. And he's devoted himself to the study of religion in pre-modern Europe with an extraordinary book on the art of dying in Spain, many monographic studies, and with a book he's currently engaged on, which I literally cannot wait to read. It's a book on people who did impossible things in early modern Europe. People who bilocated, that's to say, appeared in two places at once, people who flew, people who did other impossible things under impulses which early modern people had interesting ways of decoding. But he's also always at work on many projects, including a, a history of religious life in early modern Europe and the project about which we'll hear him speak for the next few days. So it is, as always, a pleasure to welcome a distinguished scholar here, but it's a pleasure on other grounds to welcome Carlos Eyre. He is, unlike most of us who teach and write history, a real and extraordinary writer, and I urge those of you who might not have to read, even if you don't make it to the war against the idols or the art of dying, Waiting for Snow in Havana, his extraordinary memoir of an extraordinary childhood, which won the National Book Award a few years ago and is really a, 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 one of the most astonishing pieces of prose I've read in many years. It would also be wrong to welcome him only as a scholar and not say that he is a legendary teacher, um, revered by undergraduates and what is much more astonishing, also by his graduate students, a number of whom I have the pleasure of knowing. So tonight and for the next two nights, we'll be getting a typically fascinating account of a brusque history of eternity, a title that promises a lot. Please join me in welcoming Carlos Eyre to Princeton. Thank you, Tony, for that beautiful introduction. And thank you, Fred. Thank you, the Committee on Lectures, for inviting me to be here. It's, a, it's not just a pleasure, but a great honor to be here before you giving a lectures on such a large subject. And I warn you ahead of time, of course, this is an enormous subject. But, uh, any, any lecture on uh, eternity, be brief. And, <laughs> and I'll, um, I, someone told me this yesterday, as I said, now, well, you're, I'm lecturing at Princeton, well, what's the topic? I said, eternity. Okay. So they said, well, we have an opening line. He said, this man, this, uh, one of my graduate students said, you have a perfect opening line. That, um, what is a definition of eternity is when you've been listening to Wagner for five hours and then realize it's only been five minutes. <laughs> I will substitute Kant for Wagner. But all accounts are brief, and I'll start us off with a meditation from someone I will be 
quoting in the second lecture, a Jesuit no one knows anything about, Juan Eusebio Nirenberg, S.J., uh, who borrowed this from earlier monastic writers, but this was his meditation on uh, eternity, actually sub-meditation on hell, part of eternity. Uh, imagine that all the oceans on earth are drained and they're filled with sand. And a bird, every thousand years, takes one grain of sand. By the time the process is over, how does that compare to eternity? Nothing. Nothing whatsoever. So, get ready. Um, a word about the three lectures. Today, I cover more ground than is reasonable. I go from early Christian times through the Middle Ages up to about 1500. So today's lecture is the most general, but I'd like to set up the theme. Second lecture will be about the Reformation and the way in which the Reformation transformed Western thinking on the relationship between this earth, time and space, and eternity. And that is sort of the centerpiece. The third lecture will be about the modern age. And uh, that one will be a great venture for me because I seldom go past 1700. So the, the last lecture will be more poetic than historical. Sometime in the 12th century, an English canon from Lincoln named Philip embarked on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Like many other pilgrims of his day, Philip never made it to the Holy Land. But the reasons for his failure were somewhat unique. As it turned out, he managed to find a superior destination to Jerusalem in Bordeaux. Excuse me, in Burgundy. How could I make this mistake? at the Cistercian Monastery headed by St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Writing to the Bishop of Lincoln to explain why his canon, Philip, would not be returning, St. Bernard had the confidence to say, and I quote, He, Philip, has taken a shortcut and arrived quickly at the place of his destination. He has entered the holy city. Therefore, rather than a curious spectator, he is a devout inhabitant and an enrolled citizen of Jerusalem, not of the earthly Jerusalem, but that of the Jerusalem which is above. And if you insist on knowing, this Jerusalem is no other than Clairvaux. She herself is Jerusalem, affiliated to the Jerusalem which is in heaven by the complete devotion of the mind, by the imitative way of life, and by a spiritual affinity. In other words, Philip was freed from all earthly responsibilities, such as returning to Lincoln or fulfilling his pilgrimage vow, because Bernard's monastic community had gained him entrance, nothing less than eternity. Simply put, Philip was now beyond time and space. Whether or not he still had bad teeth, kidney stones, or dirt under his fingernails, 
a few hundred miles south of Lincoln made absolutely no difference. He was in another dimension by spiritual affinity. Bernard's rhetorical gambit speaks volumes any way that one looks at it. The mere fact that he could employ such outrageously inflated language with the Bishop of Lincoln, hoping to be understood, shows clearly that the concept of eternity held a central place in their way of thinking and also their way of life. Eternity was no mere abstraction or metaphor. Another piece of advice I got from someone, well, why don't you deal with eternity as metaphor? Well, my whole point is that for a long time, it was not. It was anything but metaphor. Eternity was the ultimate destination, as real as legal obligations or money or death. It was an ineffable mystery, to be sure, but of no less value in human interaction than material objects such as precious gems, contracts, salted fish, or plows. In fact, to say that it was of no less value or as real as anything is to sell the concept short and to surrender totally to anachronisms and present-day assumptions. Among the elites who ruled in Bernard's day, eternity was constantly invoked as a superior reality, higher in value, than temporal existence. How different in our own day. In Western culture, where eternity seems a purely abstract concept, totally unrelated to our lives, unless it appears in New Yorker cartoons. And I'll have some of those on, on the third lecture. Or worse, it's a frightfully uncertain horizon best summed up by Vladimir Nabokov in his... Uh, Memoir, Speak Memory. Memorable words, quote, The cradle rocks above an abyss, and our common sense tells us that our existence is but a brief crack, crack of light, between two eternities of darkness. How did eternity emerge in the West? as something more than a mere concept, how did eternity materialize as a fourth dimension and an organizing principle for life and then disappear? What difference does this history make? That is the subject of these lectures. But before proceeding any further, I must make clear the boundaries of these lectures, pinpointing the nature of their brusqueness detailing what I will cover and what I will not. I am not going to be covering philosophical or theological questions directly. What I will be doing instead, try to provide a survey of the way in which an abstract concept has played a role in the real world. This is history pure and simple. I am what I am, a historian, not a philosopher or theologian. And as Tony Grafton pointed out to you, my own peculiar obsession as a historian has always been the intersection of intellectual and social history. And one of the cheap assumptions, cheap, not cheap, 
but cheap assumptions I have tried to challenge in all my work is the conceit that ideas matter very little or not at all in human history. A sworn enemy I am of reductionist history, be it intellectual or social. I strive to find a dynamic relation between beliefs and actions and to argue that material determinism, which excludes ideas, is as wrong-headed as old-fashioned Geistesgeschichte, which traced ideas from mind to mind over centuries and assigned the disembodied thoughts responsibility for history. A footnote. Having lived under a doctrinaire Marxist-Leninist totalitarian regime and having lost relatives to the firing squads employed by that regime, I am especially sensitive to the dangers of reductionism. More specifically, all my work has focused on the way in which realities beyond those experienced by the senses have been imagined and how these imaginings have affected people's behavior. These lectures will explore the nature and function of one key concept in Western civilization, and I will try to trace its development. Don't expect me to answer the question of whether Time itself is included in eternity or time is outside of eternity? Those are the kinds of questions I am not going to address. I will mention in passing who may have said that, A or B, but I will not deal with the question head on. And also another footnote, how did I get to this podium? For the past three years, I've been part of a project funded by the Lilly Endowment called the Project and Lived Theology. And there are about uh, seven of us in this project for three years. We've been discussing what lived theology is. And uh, the more we discuss it, the farther we get from a definition. But the whole idea is the, the very nice kind of premise that, in fact, beliefs are lived. Beliefs are not just thought or felt. Beliefs are lived. So I thought long and hard of what my project might be for this lived theology group. And um, I thought eternity was the right kind of project because I think in our modern culture nothing seems more remote and disembodied than eternity. So I've gone back and looked at a subject that has been one of my specialties the history of death. And actually, this is how I entered. This is the door through which I entered eternity, my work on death and the history of death, because, in fact, eternity is what stands on the other side of that dark, awful door none of us wants to approach as a concept or as a very real thing. So, to begin at the beginning, in antiquity, a quick refresher, because you all know all this already. We all know it's taught from first grade. Western culture, the concept of eternity has always been very closely related to that of God or of heaven. Two streams joined to form a single tradition, that of Greek philosophy and that of Jewish monotheism. 
For the pagan philosophers of antiquity, eternity was related to questions of time, perfection, and the emergence of the physical world. At the most basic level, metaphysical questions concerning eternity remained closely linked to religion through metaphorical or mythological language. Questions about the origin of the cosmos and its relation to time naturally encompass the question of what being or entity might exist necessarily above and beyond time. And teleology, figuring out what the purpose was, was as unavoidable as ontology, having to deal with the concept of being itself. Questions about the proper end of human existence always loomed large in all speculations about eternity. And as a matter of fact, the vantage point from which I will be speaking about eternity is chiefly that of how it affects human beings, which means how it affects human concepts of the afterlife and the relation of what that afterlife or no afterlife may be to daily life. Of course, the West gets its God from Jewish monotheism, but it also gets it from Greek philosophers. The two Greek philosophers who had the greatest influence on Western notions of eternity were Plato, who lived uh, about 428 to 347 before the Common Era, and Aristotle, about 384 to 322. And of these two, Plato is the most important because Plato conceived of a hierarchical ontology with eternity as a realm outside of time. And Christians will get stuck with this notion of eternity, which contained in Plato's thinking the eternal forms or ideas that were the source of all creation. Plato's metaphysics were refined further along monotheistic lines by Philo, a Jewish contemporary of Jesus, and Plotinus, a pagan who lived between 185 and 254 of our era. Their most significant contribution was to conceive of the source of creation and time itself as a single being who was completely above and beyond time, timeless. Philo, a Jew, naturally ascribed this timelessness to Yahweh, the God of the Torah, who was one, with a capital O, and without any distinctions. Plotinus conceived of a more complex divine triad, the one, the noose, or mind, and the psyche, or soul, always drawn on the board by professors, but looks like a, a target. Never mind yourself. <laughs> The one comes to 
becomes conscious, overflows into spirit, and keeps overflowing in emanations. So you get to the very lowest, lowest level of all. As close to non-being as one can get, which is not being mathematically precise here about the number of emanations, but I've run out of blackboard. The very lowest level. Our world. And the purpose of human existence, because somehow, and this is more of a mythopoetic explanation than a rational one, somehow, all of us human beings are an image of this triad, and we're spirit trapped in matter. And our purpose in life is to get back. How do you do that? Well, Plotinus uh, is very ascetic. And actually there were followers of Plotinus who practiced asceticism and self-denial. One of them, I'll spend a few minutes talking about, Augustine of Hippo, ended up becoming a Christian because he figured out somehow the only way to be a good follower of Plotinus was to be a Christian. More about that in a few minutes. Aristotle's contribution was less mythopoetic. And this will also influence the West. Contrasting necessary and contingent existence on purely logical terms. Aristotle conceived of eternity as an absolute ontological necessity. Absolutely necessary if anything exists at all. It must be derived from something that has eternal existence. In other words, in order for anything to exist, there must be a source of being that exists necessarily for all times. And although Aristotle was no monotheist, Jews and Christians would find a very natural fit between the person of the Hebrew god Yahweh I am who am, and Aristotle's eternal, necessary cause of all being. Now, merging the God of these philosophers, who may not even be called God, with the God of the Hebrews, was not always easy. And one of the most confused areas of Christian theology, no matter how far back you go in Christian theology, is that which deals with eschatology. That is, the part of theology that deals with what happens at the end of life and at the end of history. Lots of confusion. Going back to the New Testament itself, I dare you to find a consistent theory of what happens at the end in the New Testament. Among the early Christians who grappled with this confusion and with the dilemmas raised by mingling the Greek concepts of metaphysics, what lies beyond the physical, with revelation, you have to stop and, and pause for a while at Augustine of Hippo, who lived from 353 to 430. He was a consummate philosopher who would become the consummate Christian theologian. But he would not become a Christian until age 35. And he becomes a Christian because he wants to be a good Neoplatonist. 
but finds that he, he really can't be a very good ascetic. That's, he's very upset at the fact that Christians, these Christian monks can give up their material world, but he can't until Ambrose, St. Ambrose in Milan, teaches him a very neat secret that the Bible is not to be read literally and then begins his uh, conversion to Christianity. But he finds that by embracing Christ, he can give up the world. It's quite a leap and not uh, too illogical given the fact that his mother was Christian and had hounded him for years. But in Augustine, we find Plotinus being baptized, so to speak. The triad, very easily converted to the Christian trinity. And Augustine assumes, takes for granted, in fact, that time was outside and beneath God's eternity. In other words, God was timeless, without beginning and end, in an eternal now which contained time itself, past, present, and future. In Augustine, divine fullness and eternity are one and the same thing, coinciding as fully as the opposite ends of time. And here is Augustine speaking from the Confessions, addressing God. You are before the beginning of all ages, prior to everything that can be said to be before. In you, the present day has no ending, and yet in you it has its end, purpose. Your years are one today. But of what use was eternity for Augustine? What use whatsoever? Nothing less than the claim that earthly time in and of itself was so insubstantial and illusory as to border on non-being. And the corollary assumption that human existence and history itself could only find fulfillment in eternity. Analyzing time itself, the essence of time, in ways eerily close to those of present-day physicists. And in the third lecture, I try to bring together Augustine and the latest research on time that physicists have been carrying out that I can understand in a magazine for laymen. What is time, asked Augustine. What is time? And I quote, provided that no one asks me, I know. But if I want to explain it, I do not know. Time was much more than an epistemological puzzle for him, though, and an ontological conundrum. Time was uncomfortably close to illusion. And I quote again, time flies so quickly from future into past that it is an interval with no duration. If it has duration, it is divisible into past and future, but the present occupies no space. And even the simplest and shortest word failed to capture the essence of now. Because the word itself, when thought or uttered, was nothing but part of an unceasing, evanescent flow from the present 
to the past. You start the word now, by the time you get to the W, it's behind you. You cannot grab time. You cannot pinpoint time. So, what does this mean? In epistemological, metaphysical, and spiritual terms. What it means is that we live in an unreal world. Because all we are is the past. And the past no longer exists. The future doesn't exist yet. All we are is the past, but the past doesn't exist. And Augustine gets kind of angry about this in the Confessions. You can see his frustration rising. And he, he, he groans. You can hear him groaning or actually screaming. If future and past events exist, I want to know where they are. Where are they? They're in the memory. But the memory fades. So where, are, where is the past? The past. It's nowhere to be found. His conclusion was as drastic as it was definitive. Since now is a ceaselessly moving point between future and past, totally ephemeral, vaporific, time itself is sorely lacking in substance. Who can measure the past which does not now exist or the future which does not yet exist, he asked, unless perhaps someone dares to assert that he can measure what has no existence. Abstract as such an insight might seem, it had profound practical implications. Its ultimate significance lay in the ontological claim that existence itself was only fully realized in eternity. And here a technical term, and actually this is where I'd like you to turn to the handout um, that, I, that was waiting for you. If you don't have one, there are some up here, and I think there's some still on the chair back there. Now, I'm not going to read this. I'm sending this home with you for reading, later reading and meditation, but I want to go through it because this is the, the crossroads. Fourth, fifth century, a lot of Greek thinking and a lot of meditation on Hebrew scriptures and the Christian New Testament all come together. There are different ways of speaking of eternity. And just as in Christian theology, there's a lot of confusion about eschatology. In philosophy, uh, there is also uh, not a confusion necessarily, but there are different ways of speaking about eternity or thinking about it. And I want to lay out for you here some of the most basic ones. So you can see where Augustine and the Christian tradition fit. One way of thinking of eternity is to think of eternity as time without beginning or an end. And this is called sempiternity, which means you have sequential time forever. It has no beginning and it has no end, but it's always sequential. It's what we experience. Total eternity, which has no beginning or end. But... There are four ways you can speak about this sempiternity, and this is how complex things begin to get. And look at this, four. A, you can think about it as absolute eternity, which has neither beginning nor end. Or second, two eternities. If you, if you look at that now point, 
the now. There's always a before and an after. And then you can also think of the past eternity or speak of the past eternity alone, which is, in human terms at least, history. Or in the case of God, this is where things get more complex. You know, he sees both before and after. For him, there is just, and this is what Augustine is trying to say, for God, there is just one now which is comprehended all at once. D, you can also think of just the future, which is where, uh, you know, this is where astrology, prophecy, and even Nostradamus come in. You know, actually see, because as God sees it, everything just simply exists. So therefore, you can see into the future. In Christian thought, those four ways of speaking about eternity sort out the following way. A pertains to God and his non-successive knowledge of everything. B pertains to God before and after creation. C to God before creation. And D pertains to God and the universe after creation. And if you've ever read Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five, you've encountered B. And I have for you there a quote from Slaughterhouse-Five about how the Tralfamadorians can look at time, all the different moments, as a mountain range and simply experience in the character of Billy Pilgrim in Slaughterhouse-Five gets unstuck in time and ends up going backwards and forwards, but it's all there. Take it moment by moment, he says, and you will find that we are all, as I've said before, bugs in amber. There's another way of thinking of eternity as something that transcends time altogether and is either wholly separate from time or includes time within. Augustine is 2B. It is not in time that you, God, precede times. Otherwise, you would not precede all times. But to make things even more complicated, if you turn it over, number three, and here I'm quoting scripture, quoting the psalmist, it's a state that includes time, but precedes and exceeds it. And then number four, there's the platonic eternity. The intelligible realm, which is now obsolete, but still remains influential. And if you turn to the other page, the diagrams. I got the top diagram from D.P. Walker, The Decline of Hell. That's his drawing, not mine. But that's the platonic eternity explained there. Because it, it involves reincarnation. You see, and the, the symbol of the snake swallowing itself is a symbol for the non successive still eternity of the intelligible world, the Platonic intelligible world. And the, what looks like a pinwheel, this is the endless cycle of souls coming down from the intelligible realm, down to earth, back up, down, back up, back up, back up. And it's, it's all eternal. 
Christians, thanks largely to St. Augustine, replace it with the diagram you see below. And that, again, this is my crude attempt basing it on partly on D.P. Walker and a few other things. So this is in the works, as so to speak, but I think this kind of lays it out. What is the endless circle, the snake swallowing its tail, in Christianity, not really thought of as circular in that sense, because that involves a constant return, but it's, it just simply is. So it's open-ended at both ends, going to infinity, we would say backwards and forwards, but of course in God's terms there's no such thing. That's the symbol for the Trinity in the middle. The Christian non-successive still eternity is God, and where God dwells. But then, God begins to make things, begins to create things. And that's the line coming down, the avum. The universe gets created, and first he makes uh, angels. Makes planets and angels and all these other things. And uh, very different one from the other. Planets and angels and because if you see the, the lines there, the way they break down, there is a part of non-successive eternity where the angels dwell and where all redeemed human beings will dwell. And that's the Ava. But, again, please, speaking of before and after gets a little tricky in these situations, but there's no question about it. At one point, Time and space begin, creation. And this is a finite line. The middle line is finite successive time, this world. Of course, Augustine had no idea that human beings only occupied such a tiny fraction of this line that it wouldn't even show on here. But think as Augustine and as medieval Christians. Humans are on this line after seven days, after six days, after five days, on the sixth day. Humans are on that line. This is time. Finite, successive time. And what happens when you die is that, well, Augustine's time, a little unclarity about, uh, you know, what uh, exactly happens doesn't get much clearer afterwards except that by the 12th century you have purgatory. More about that in the second lecture. But the basic pattern is human beings inhabit time and space. When they die, they have two ultimate places where they can end up. They can end up back in the Avon where they will experience partially non-successive eternity with the angels partial because they've begun in time. They have nothing before. All we have is endless ahead. Or, if you do the wrong thing, or many wrong things, you end up in hell with the fallen angels, the demons. And that, too, lasts forever. But here's the interesting thing. The way that medieval philosophers and theologians parsed it out was that hell was so bad... It couldn't be non-successive eternity. In order to feel your torture, 
really feel it. It had to be successive eternity. And time would drag on forever. Wagner for eternity. (laughs) Kant for eternity. Whatever it is that you loathe for eternity. Black velvet paintings of Elvis for eternity. Whatever. That's the basic breakdown. And um, back to the other side. Number five. Eternity is also related to the concept of infinity. And it shares some of the same meanings or is confused with eternity. The most common association made, distinction between these terms, is that eternity applies only to time, whereas infinity applies to both space and time. But if you start reading about eternity, especially in philosophy, you see that, uh, well, the definitions become a problem. The definitions become an obstacle. And Christians, from time of Augustine when he's the first to actually give serious thought to time and eternity. They find themselves very hard-pressed to define very clearly what it is. All they know, and this is why I thought the diagram would be helpful, is that this will end. But when this ends, time and space, humans will still continue to exist. So had they thought of the big crunch that is coming. No worry. No worry about the big crunch because we will continue. One would hope one would end on the good side rather than the bad side, but that is the measure of medieval Christian religion. And this is what I'd like to argue, that in fact eternity becomes so real because it's the way in which human destiny comes to be explained and it's just simply accepted and it begins to work its way into daily life so that by the time you get to the 6th century and the 7th century Gregory the Great, Gregory the First the wonderful book entitled The Dialogues Book four of the dialogues is filled with stories about people who come back from the dead and report back what's been happening to them. Many of them are in a state of purgation and need to be released from the state of purgation. And here's where things get very interesting and where actually uh, anthropologists and historians of religion could contribute a whole lot. Making sense of the way in which Christians have approached eternity because Christians turned to ritual between Augustine and Gregory. Christians turned to ritual, and one ritual in particular, which is at once, and it's supercharged because of this, it's a ritual and a symbol together, and that is the Eucharist. And it is thanks to Gregory mostly, some would argue entirely, that the celebration of the Eucharist is tied eternity. The Eucharist is beyond time and space. The Eucharist is interpreted by Gregory's time 
as a repetition of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, but not a repetition in sequential sense. Every time the Eucharist is celebrated, there is Jesus at Calvary, offering his sacrifice again, right there in time and space and also outside of time and space. And even more significant, Gregory makes it very clear. Celebrating this ritual can lessen people's purgation in the afterlife. You can actually apply this ritual. It carries over into the afterlife. So the Mass, the celebration of the Eucharist, becomes the central ritual and central symbol of Christianity, not just for all its other meanings, but because it is precisely connected to eternity. And... In what other ways does eternity define medieval Christianity? Monasticism, an institution that is central to understanding the Western past and also the Christian past. Monasticism is all about eternity, as you saw in the quote from Bernard. The whole idea of denying yourself physical gratification and spending your entire time praying is that you are preparing yourself for the afterlife. And as a matter of fact, this is why Bernard can say in the 12th century, my monastery is a little mini-scale replica. Actually, it's a, it's a clear image and reflection of the heavenly Jerusalem because we are already there in this monastery. And again, this is where ritual comes in. It's not just the fact that they're denying themselves certain kinds of food or drink, or that um, they're giving up sex. It's the fact that they're praying all day long and they're performing these liturgies. And the liturgies themselves come to be seen as very clear images, reflections of the kind of veneration the, the angels have in heaven. And there are numerous medieval accounts of Nuns and monks who can actually see the angels there singing with them and are convinced that, in fact, if it were not for them, the monks and nuns, doing this over and over again and practicing their acts of self-denial, the apocalypse would be here much sooner. They are actually extending human history by what they do so. Does this make sense? Is this logical? One would think one would want the apocalypse to come as soon as possible. But no, this is the way that Christian thinking works in terms of paradoxes, in terms of the coincidence of opposites. And in monasticism, then, develops another very important area of human experience in the Middle Ages, which we experts tend to call mysticism, Individuals who claim to experience God in the here and now, who claim to transcend time and space. And the claims made by mystics can be quite extreme. Pause for just a second on one of the most extreme, who comes to have an immense influence, both directly and indirectly, on the course of Western thinking. And actually, when he's rediscovered by German idealists in the 19th century, it's a great revelation to many that 
there could be such an advanced mind. In the 14th century, I'm speaking of Meister Eckhart, who took Augustine a level further. And here's the most amazing thing about Eckhart. We are told Meister Eckhart was the most popular preacher in Cologne, perhaps in all of Germany. The people flocked to hear him. But you read the sermons that have survived, and they are filled with the most outrageous sort of language. And as someone who teaches Meister Eckhart every other year, incomprehensible to students in the, this present day and age, incomprehensible to professors, and yet, you know, people flock to Meister Eckhart. Let me quote to you from Eckhart before we move on to the last part of this lecture. Because Eckhart's take on the mystical experience, let's call it that, is intensely anthropocentric, very focused on human beings. His claim, very similar to that of Plotinus and Augustine, by whom he was deeply influenced, is that deep inside every human being, there's a direct connection to eternity, because deep inside every human being, at the very core of the self, what is the ultimate you or me, the divine spark, my favorite word in German, Dunklein, a little tiny spark, a little tiny spark of the divine, which if you do things the right way, you deny yourself attachment to the world enough, and he doesn't say exactly how you get there, you get to this line or spark, you can enter the eternal now moment. And I will read to you some of the radical statements of Eckhart. God's day is the real now moment, which for the soul is eternity's day, on which the Father begets his only begotten Son, and the soul is reborn in God. Whenever this birth occurs, it is the soul giving birth to the only begotten Son, meaning God the Son. The very generation of the entire trinity occurs within each individual. The creation of the world occurs within each individual when you get beyond time and you get beyond space. I quote again, The soul that lives in the present now moment is the soul in which the Father begets his only begotten Son, and in that birth, the Son born again. And taking his conception of divine human affinities to their ultimate logical conclusion, Eckhart said, and I quote, I am my own first cause, both of my eternal being and my temporal being. To this end I was born, and by virtue of my birth being eternal, I shall never die. It is of the nature of this eternal birth that I have been eternally, that I am now, and shall be forever. And Eckhart comes to have an immense influence, even though he is uh, condemned for his errors. He dies before he can clear his name, but his disciples carry his ideas further. 
without the extreme language. And eventually he will come to have an immense impact, not only in Germany and the Low Countries, but eventually in Spain, Italy, and France also. And what is the point of all this? Why is Eckhart important? Because he raises human existence to a level so high as to, and this is what he gets accused of teaching, that he is confusing the human with the divine. But that is the claim that in one way or another most medieval Christian mystics make. And no one has crunched the numbers. I don't know what percent, but it is a very high percentage of them that actually focus on the business of experiencing eternity and recreating eternity in these monastic communities. If we had more time and this were a course that lasted 12 weeks, I could spend six of the 12 weeks detailing how monasticism as an institution socially, economically, politically has shaped the West. Think about that in, without the details. That in fact, creating these communities in which you're supposed to experience eternity, sub-institutions within society at large has an immense impact on the West. And then finally, trying to go all the way from early Christianity to 1500 or so. Politics. We're still living with that ghost. Politics and religion. Religion and politics. How does eternity factor in all this and the development of the West? Well, I hope the thread I begin tonight I will be able to return to in the third lecture. Throughout the Middle Ages, from the collapse of the Western Roman Empire on, and even in the Byzantine Empire to a certain extent, the clerics, the professional religious, come to think of themselves as the spiritual class. And actually to think of earthly government as, what do they call it? Temporal, secular meaning of this age, of time only. We clerics, we're plugged into eternity. And uh, Pope Innocent III, the 13th century, will be very clear about this. And he will say that the power of the Pope can be compared to the light of the sun, which is direct and actually can't be looked at power of earthly monarchs and earthly rulers is like the light of the moon, which is reflected. It's not direct. Why? Because the church as a whole, and its clergy specifically, hold the keys to eternity. So therefore, while your, your king, your prince, your duke, your earl, only has rule over your body, which will one day disappear, Every cleric, no matter how immoral or disgusting, has power over your eternal destiny. So therefore, that makes the church so far superior. The temporal rule, also called secular. 
And uh, yes, church and state will go at it throughout the medieval period. This will not get very well defined. But my point, the edge towards closing, is that eternity becomes very real in the sense that you have institutions, social institutions, which are not only devoted to lead men and women to the experience of eternity in the here and now, institutions that shape the rest of society in various ways, but you also have an institution that claims that it's the most important institution on earth and actually many times gets away with this claim simply by saying, we hold your eternal destiny in our hands. Imagine the power that gives anyone. And the funny thing is, as I always tell my students, yes, popes had armies, but they had armies as local rulers. The church or churches didn't have armies. They had incredible bureaucracies, yes, but they did not have armies. Yet they managed to survive during very brutal times, very brutal periods, without armies. And the most amazing thing is this hold they have on eternity. And one of my favorite scenes in, in Western history, because it tells you both sides of the story, and I'll end with this. Emperor Henry IV, in a conflict with the Pope, Gregory Seventh. And, um, well, Gregory ends up excommunicating Henry because Henry, don't want to get into the little details, he's uh, performing a ritual, a ceremony for uh, investing bishops with their office, and the Pope has said, no, you as king can't do that. That's my business. Well, um, Henry IV retaliates by calling together his bishops and deposing the Pope. You can imagine. But the Pope not only excommunicates Henry, he absolves all of his vassals from obedience to him. Because now that he is excommunicate, he's outside of society. And a rebellion breaks out back in the empire, and Henry has to go beg the Pope for forgiveness. And he does for three days at Canossa. Actually, the Pope thought Henry was coming to kill him, so he hides in a fortress. But the thing is, Henry kneels uh, by one account or stands in the snow for three days bareheaded, the ultimate sign of deference. And what happens? The Pope, what's his job? What's the Pope's main job? You know, is to forgive people. So, here's the moral of the tale. The Pope wins this battle and loses it at the same time. Henry comes for forgiveness and the Pope has to forgive him. But who has the real armies? Who will be the eventual winner in this tug of war? Eh, they both win a little and lose a little, but when you weigh it all in, it's Emperor Henry who gets away with a lot. But the papacy survives, and subsequent popes will make the same claim over and over and over and over again. And um, this claim to having control of eternity well, is it gone? Is it gone completely from our culture? Well, it's kind of disappeared. It's become private. And to give you a preview of tomorrow and Thursday, tomorrow I will deal very, very closely.
with the Protestant Reformation and the way in which the Protestant Reformation undoes this. On Thursday, I will try to analyze the ways in which although belief in eternity is now private, it still has a great deal of real influence and impact on all of us. Um, and not just you know, physicists or mathematicians who actually work with the cosmos and try to figure out you know, time and eternity, but political structures too. And um, tomorrow I will begin with um, a very powerful scene where this begins to be undone when Luther, Martin Luther, begins to reject the notion that a human institution on earth can make any claims to eternity. So um, I hope I'll see you tomorrow. And it's time for questions or? Okay. I'm so overwhelmed by your lecture. I don't know if I dare to ask the question, but I'll try. Uh, it's not clear to me from what you said. Is there a distinction between space and a time within your concept of eternity? Well, for Christian thinkers, which is what I was dealing with and focusing on most uh, intensely, I mean, Basically. is there one is a, a well, they don't talk, hierarchy? See, they, don't, they don't talk in those terms. In many ways, I projected our understanding back into the past. They don't use these terms that we do, space-time or space and time. But they, this is, you know, from, from Genesis. In the beginning, in the beginning, God starts everything. And that's when things begin. They begin what, physically. He makes things physically, space, and he creates time. He creates sequential time, which is tied to space. And the Greeks were much more sophisticated, you know, thinking that, yes, time is tied to motion. You can't have time without motion. So, yes, they kind of inchoately, not in the sense that we have a conception of space-time. They did, yes, but uh, what they're working with is... Uh, series of strings of thought and different traditions which don't necessarily agree with one another and in some cases contradict one another. For instance, when you go to hell, because it's believed that you know if you're bad enough, you go to hell directly. You go there with your soul, right? Because your body's left behind on earth. How do you feel all the pain? How do you get tortured? And we have you know descriptions of hell that focus on Space, physicality. The reason one, one description of hell is so horrible because you have no personal space. 
you're jammed together one of my least favorite images like grapes in a wine press in hell you have no personal space right you have bodies how is that possible you don't have a body so they they try to think around these images which are in many ways metaphors which they don't accept as metaphors so the whole thing gets a little complex but the, the final answer to your question is there's a lot of unclarity about space-time as it relates to eternity and the afterlife. Well, one thing is clear. Everyone is taught to believe that it is real. Do we have proof that there were people who didn't believe it was real? Yes. The Inquisition files in Spain are filled with cases, 16th century, which think most people would uh, be willing to, to stretch a little bit and say, yes, if we have them in the 16th century, chances are we had them in the 15th, 14th, and maybe even in the 2nd or 3rd. People who are executed for unbelief, and they're, they're actually you know, told, you know, we'll f forgive you if you say you believe in God, and they die as they're being burnt to death, saying, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in eternity. I don't believe in an afterlife. This is all there is. And they're martyrs for unbelief. But this is how the social structures are constructed. These people end up being burnt for saying, there is no afterlife. This is all there is. I hope that there is no simple answer. Um, so I, I want to try and do justice to a, a little section in a recent book by Philip Nemo uh, in which he uh, describes one of the um, primary elements of the Gregorian Re Re Reformation uh, uh, in, uh, in the 12th century as uh, Gregory uh, pulling the church away from... Um, this uh, focus on the eternal and, and putting it more in the temporal and that it was to some extent that focus on the eternal that was responsible for the relative lack of progress up until that time. That's so, would you comment on, sure. on that? Sure. I, I haven't heard this um, argument. Um, I haven't read it. So, but it sounds like an incredibly broad generalization that again you know goes back to um, notions that you know, conceptions have this kind of uh, amorphous influence what what kind of structures what kind of structures does eternity set up eternity sets up monasteries eternity sets up the clergy and their position this is what I'm saying <clears throat> Lack of progress, that's a big one. That's a big one because um, what does it mean to say that there's lack of progress because there's a focus on eternity? Uh, Max Weber's uh, argument about the relationship between Calvinism, especially development of modern capitalism, is precisely that. You know, Reformation does away with this, and tomorrow I will be saying something about that. You know, what... What changed? But progress is a kind of 
general and vague term, and it's a lo very loaded term. So, um, again, I, I don't want to be any more specific without actually reading this specific book and seeing what it says. But, but would you describe part of what Gregory tried to do was uh, pull back from that focus on eternity? Is that I, no, I wouldn't even I wouldn't even go as far as to agree with that wholesale. In some ways, yes, but not in all ways. One of the things that Gregory is very interested in doing is making the clergy less secular and and actually widening the gulf between clerics and secular rulers. That's one of his main interests, is sort of disentangling, you know, the fact that most of the leading ecclesiastics come from the same social class as the political rulers and, in fact, are their brothers and cousins and still have all kinds of ties. One of the things that Gregory tries to do, tries to do is to sever those ties. So in some ways, yes, others, no. He tries to clean up earthly institutions, but one way he tries to do it is by making these earthly institutions more purely spiritual. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks,